All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Sachin and Adam Show. So as you can see, Adam and I aren't on Zoom today because we've got another <laughs> Sydney Uni boy with us, which is awesome. Um, so this episode is going to be a little bit different to what we've been doing recently. If you've been watching the podcast recently, you've known we've gotten a lot of um, podcasts, VCs on, and we thought we'd go back to our roots and talk to another university student and just have a really interesting discussion. And as you'll see in a second, Sean isn't an ordinary university student. <laughs> He's written this book, um, which Adam will get into a second. But I think we should also highlight that Biden just won the election. So pretty exciting <laughs> times ahead, um, which may be something we can go into today. Well, we don't get political here, do we, Sachin? <laughs> We're totally neutral. <laughs> Not. Um, <laughs> no, but we've got a pretty cool guest today. So basically, I found out about Sean just on my Facebook newsfeed. It was this guy that I knew from like a couple years ago shared this post about someone that had written a book about Joe Rogan called <laughs> The Curious Ape. And it's about the 25 most powerful ideas from scientists, philosophers, and innovators on the Joe Rogan podcast. So I've been a big Joe Rogan fan and Sachin's a bit in the middle about Joe Rogan. <laughs> I was like, we've got to talk to this guy. So Sean studies science and law at Sydney University, also works at a venture capital firm called Blackbird. Um, welcome onto the show. Thanks for having me, guys. So we want to dive straight into it. What was the process of writing a book like? Because you're a young guy and... We don't hear people doing this. So what were the trials and tribulations of it? Yeah, there was, uh, there was a lot of tribulations, if you ask my family. But basically, um, I was in Austin, Texas. And the backstory of the book is actually not as no. I was, I regret to say, I was in spring break and I was just like partying at a frat house, pretty degenerate. And then what happened was the COVID thing really started to pick up. And I not even wasn't thinking about writing a book at that time. I was just kind of in America, got home was like pretty upset to be home and side to side. I was like, mm, I've kind of got a period of time where I can either just do nothing, stay at home and, or I can kind of go after something that I'd wanted to do when I was like little was to write a book. So I thought, well, you know, like the adult thing when you're in a creative writing class, like they always say, kind of write what you know. So like I couldn't start writing something like one piece. I didn't really know anything. So I was yeah. like, I know Joe Rogan really, really well. So, so I so to be clear, the book, the idea of writing a book came before writing about Joe Rogan. Yeah. So okay, I, cool. I'd always been into writing and yeah. kind of I'd like written a few other things, like a few film scripts and stuff. But then the, the Joe Rogan idea kind of came because I was like the the, the the kind of problem, if you will, was I kind of approached it like starting a business in a way. I was yeah, like, yeah. me and my friends love Joe Rogan. There's actually some really, really high quality ideas, but it's mixed with a lot of like some yeah, you got Alex, yeah, you Alex Jones. But I like, think that's why people like him because he's an ideas man, but at the same time, he's a really weird guy. Yeah, he's like a manly man. Yeah, like yeah, guns, exactly. Like mm. doing psychedelic drugs, all the well, actually, I don't know if that's a manly man. That's some weird stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like mixing the weird with the ideas. He, he's the modern man, which like there's something <laughs> we talk about a lot that it's crazy that he's the most popular media icon in our generation. He's <laughs> he's the Renaissance man on DMT. Like that's <laughs> like that's kind of what he is. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah so. There was a lot of episodes and then there was like a lot of ideas which over the years have really shaped my way of thinking. And I was like, it'd be really cool as a project to try and distill into like the most powerful kind of game-changing ideas. And so I was like, okay, fuck it. I'm going to just go balls of the wall this project. And I've been given like four or five months of time. Like that's a big gift. And then so I just tried to, to get it done. Yeah, awesome. And what was the process like getting an editor, getting a publisher, yeah. Obviously, I'm sure a lot of them probably hadn't heard of Joe Rogan. Yeah, so there's, was, it's a, there's a lot of funny stories, actually, because when I first started, like, I thought you could cut corners, and I was like, oh, I'm just going to get an editor on Fiverr. And so my editor was in, I think it was like Pakistan, and, like, we, we did the first edit. And I was like, oh, shit, like, the, it just didn't work. And yeah. so then I was like, I'm going to actually have to invest money into it. So I got an editor, and she's this really lovely lady, and she's a 60-year-old British lady called um, Harriet. And she's like quite conservative. And so I'd like send her the chapters and I'd send her like the psychedelic chapter. And she'd be like, I think I want to try psychedelics now. And I, was like, <laughs> I was like, this is a good start. This is a good start. But yeah. And then I also um, had a designer who um, I, I like just found him online and he kind of did it pro bono. Like he, I still paid him, but he also really liked Joe Rogan. He kind of liked the idea. So he's yeah. like, yeah, cool. I'll, There's I'll a few him. Joe Rogan cult members out there. They'll there be for free. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. what were your, some of your favorite ideas from this? And just to give the sort of audience a bit of um, perspective on this, we had people like Carl Hart who talked about the war on drugs. We had Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about astrophysics in space. Edward Snowden about 
yeah. really high level, deep state sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. What were some of the ideas that fascinated you the most? Um, that's a really good question. I think the best one for me was Sebastian Younger, the one who talks about tribe. Yeah, that was my favorite as well. Yeah, because he, 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 like, he fully shaped my way of thinking because you never, when you're in the day-to-day life, you don't think like, oh, we're actually hunter-gatherers who lives in yeah. tribes of 100 people. You just think that this is the way that things should be. Mm. And so when I heard him talk about how we were actually optimized for in these like really interconnected tribes, and then he talks about how now it's so fractured and the culture rewards people who seek individual rewards. Like mm. that's what capitalism kind of is. Whereas the, those systems back then used to just reward group thinking and like altruism and stuff. And yeah. so I find that really interesting. Really cool. I, I think capitalism is weird talking about it in disregard because it is an individual pursuit. But then throughout multiple individual pursuits, it does lead to these sort of shared goals in the yeah. sense that like you creating one thing, you creating one thing, puts it into the market. And there's like this sort of efficiency in how things are yeah. created. But yeah. then you don't get that sense of that tribal togetherness. Well, I'll ask, you know? ask you a question because I saw that you were really big on social um, entrepreneurship and like kind of optimizing capitalism for people. How do you, do you think that the system is inherently designed to make people think altruistically or do you think it requires certain individuals to kind of go against the, the way that the system structured? I think it runs off self-interest for sure. I think like the very heart of capitalism is people in free markets freely producing what they want and you're doing it for some sort of incentive. But something that me and Sachin are very passionate about is people that work in finance and for businesses mm. that have this shared purpose of wanting to make profits be a business leader but then at the heart of what you're selling and making are really good things and so we're sort of seeing increasingly these financiers like andy cooper of leapfrog investments mm. and Chamath from social capital who like people that we really look up to that have these big investment vehicles with billions of dollars of assets but they invest in startups and private equity companies that are like doing amazing things in insurance tech in africa that are like creating virgin galactic on Chamath's side so we're interested in the combination of the two. Yeah, and I think just to summarize that broadly is that capitalism is based off what the market values, right? Yeah. And I think we're hypothesizing a shift in what the market values as Gen Zers and millennials get older and into yeah. positions of power, com- um, individuals will start voting with their dollar, hopefully a bit more. Yeah. And if a kind of a company is carbon neutral, hypothetically, right? Mm. We're hypothesizing that that company will be more successful than, yeah. than its counterpart, which it, it seems logical, right? Yeah. yeah. And it just seems that I think through that you can create that kind of hopefully that shared tribalism um yeah that was it sebastian talks about yeah sebastian yeah yeah i'm um, sorry i can ask you guys another question because mm. it's something i'm super interested in the tables for <laughs> is um so like i how i like to think is like what in 100 years how do you think would be the best optimized society like a kind of utopia mm. if i had to throw it to you guys what do you reckon would be your version of utopia mm. But 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 just keep it grounded in today, like so it can't be something like yeah. yeah. Just, it's got to kind of have its roots. In, uh, are, are we talking from a Western perspective or just a global perspective? Um, I think the interaction between the West and the world will be mm. a big part of the future. So I feel yeah, like you yeah, have cool. to include. I, yeah, yeah. I think that's a good question that you added on because we're looking at these sort of free market democracies in Australia mm. and America, Canada, the UK, yeah. and then obviously China's the big rising star right now, yeah. and their sense of government is totally flipped on its head. Like they yeah. have a very authoritarian, top-down government that's really, really efficient. Yeah. But then they do some horrible things in the process. Yeah. But I think, like, I think, like, I think maybe answering this question, you talk about the macro in what you imagine. I'll go from the micro. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I wouldn't think of anything in terms of utopia because I've studied enough about like the Russian Revolution <laughs> and about China and Cuba to understand yeah. that utopian thinking. The gulags don't end well. Oh, so utopia. <laughs> to understand that that thinking is so dangerous, but then. If I had to actually predict what's going to happen, I think that we're still going to be living in free market societies. I'm mm-hmm. very pro-free market, pro-capitalism, but I do think that there will be a shift uh, with businesses towards more social responsibility yeah. and towards more social investing. Because as Sachin said, there are trends which are changing, such as decarbonisation. And what we're going to see is that it's going to be profitable for businesses to latch onto those trends. Yeah. And I think we do talk about these cliches of millennials being really social justice and caring yeah. about the environment. But I think there's an element of truth to that. And I think that if people embody that in their actions, there's mm. more of a demand for those socially responsible yeah. businesses, investments and practices. Yeah. yeah cool. And I think from my end, equality of opportunity. So that's yeah. like something I'd like to see on a global in a global setting. And that I think will make capitalism function more efficiently if there isn't this like rampant inequality that we're seeing now. 
So that's one thing. And the other thing is that obviously in the next hundred years, technology is going to increase a lot. And I mm -hmm. think that something that we need to talk about is the mindful use of technology. How can we yeah. kind of still accelerate technology, preserve these things that are innately human? I know Rogan talks yeah. a lot about how we're just creatures that have like not that long ago, we lived on savannas and we yeah. tried to survive with each other. Right. And it's like, how can we establish that sense of community and that sense of stuff that we know is going to be good for our mental health? Cause on the, in the current trajectory, I'm so worried that we're going to get too isolated, right? Yeah. You can live a very great life right now, not leaving your house, messaging your friends, getting that fake dopamine hit, yeah. ordering Uber Eats, Netflix, right? And I think that um, that's going to be a problem, mindful use of technology. Yeah. What's your views on it? Um, it's interesting because when you say that, it makes me think of the famous Peter Thiel quote where he's like, we wanted flying cars and we got 140 characters. Yeah. And um, Good quote. I really like that quote, but... Before I like it, kind of, I'll respond to yours. I think it helps to set mine up so we can kind of compare them. Sure. Um, what I was thinking of, and it relates to Junga in the sense that I ultimately think that we have how we're optimized for and how we currently are. And I think that innovation and things that explode are things which try and bring us back to that. They might, and so for for an example, this is might seem like a bit of an abstract one, but TikTok, for example. Mm. So we have humans who want connection. We have currently a modern society where we don't have nearly as much connection. We have something like TikTok, which is trying to bring us back to that constant feedback loop where your peers are saying, I like that, I don't like that, that sharing content and things like that. Now, it's trying to bring us back to a more connected thing. As you were saying, is it really effective? Like, is that really what we want? And so what, what I think would be a way of using technology to create like a kind of utopia would be even a hundred years time, we could have it such that all the jobs that people didn't want, we can kind of automate that. And we could have people living in tightly communities and going to work is like almost like people in small towns saying, I'm going to go to the city. Some people won't do it. Some people will. It's completely at your discretion. But the rest of the people can kind of just be in communities and we can stop having this it seems very Andrew Yang like. Yeah, we can yeah. stop. Yeah, exactly. We can stop having this like incessity that everyone needs to work, everyone needs to keep. Like, why can't we just have societies where everyone can be connected and have a tribal kind of way of living? And then, if you want to work and you want to create change, that's still an option. Yeah. And I think the reason why technology is so relevant to that is because technology can automate and do a lot of the things that we don't really want to do necessarily. And but I think you're right. The trap is going to be veering down to just this like everything's so efficient that you can literally just exist in your living room with a VR headset yeah. and like it rates. And yeah, I like your thinking because it seems like you're thinking like a hundred years down the track when yeah. we're technologically enabled that like everything is produced at such a surplus that people literally don't need to work. Exactly. And I think there's sort of twofold problems with that. And you mentioned Andrew Yang. So when we talk about these big advancements in technology where you've got sort of capital owners and technological owners and they're, yeah. they're earning a lot of the wealth and a lot of the resources and you've got all the people left behind. Yeah. And so it's like, how do we help to spread that wealth? Yeah. It's like, are we going to need a universal basic income? And then I think extended on that idea is that if we need to share that wealth in that regards, yeah. does this mean that our future societies need to be much more top down and government controlled? Yeah. So we have people that are by law demanding that people spread wealth. Um, that's a really good point. I, I would say, obviously, we want it decentralized. And I think if we're talking in the future and utopias and technology, I think there's a lot of stuff about how blockchain could be an avenue for doing that. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of things could be distributed on the blockchain such that, like, for example, um, Uber, Airbnb, the reason that you have to, like, they charge a fee to maintain the servers, update everything. When you have blockchain apps that do things like that, they basically, the network is maintained by all the users. So it's complete, profits are completely decentralized and they're shared amongst everyone. So I think like, obviously it's kind of, this is like very forward, like in the future. And so we're kind of talking in abstractions, but I think you could have a point where you have a decentralized. But then who would determine the, re, like, the redistribution in that kind of setting if it was decentralized? You mean who would redistribute the income amongst everyone? Yeah. And I, that's 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 a big question. And I think... To think that there will be, and it touches on what you were saying about the Russian Revolution, to think that you're going to get to a, a system that's so socially different without some turmoil or something that's yeah, happened, I yeah. think is very nice. Yeah. I don't know what will happen. but I think that's a good point because when you have utopian ideas, I think we always think about the virtues mm. of human nature and we think that we can do all this stuff because we're capable. But you sometimes forget to talk about the vices and that yeah, if, we talk about, if we talk about the whole 
sort of complex realm of human nature is that when you have these lofty ambitions, there's going to be a lot of corrupt people, yeah. a lot of people that don't want to share because I don't know if that's in our human nature. And we're already seeing this now. And I think that America right now is a perfect example, right? Because we're seeing this huge, like a, a big reason that Trump was in power is he appealed to all these people that were left behind by the technological revolution, by globalization, which I'm sure our audience has heard a lot of people speak about. It's not a new idea, right? But it's like, how can we move to an America now where we can still like progress technologically right we can still have this innovation as yang talks about 15 million truck drivers are going to be unemployed in the next five to ten years yeah. what can we do for them apart from the ubi like i, I feel like you what you're saying is almost very similar to ubi where it's just like yeah. we can all coexist and if people want to do stuff they can but how can we get to a mm-hmm. point where we're redistributive enough to get to that without centralization and i think that's such a problem with what we've seen in the recent american election that if you look at a graph and you look at rule voters <laughs> we're very neutral here okay Sachin's a communist. <laughs> so what i was saying is that when you look at a graph where you, you look at the dispersion of people from the city versus rural areas yeah. that vote in the election it's such a stark contrast between trump and biden yeah. and you see that it's all like the sort of city voters that are voting for Biden and the rural voters that are voting for Trump. And what's interesting about that, right, is that they all, all those rural voters will say that Biden is socialist, right? But then if you think about what socialism actually is, that socialism would be helping those kind of people. Yeah. More, more rich to be <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very paradoxical. But, I, exactly. I think more than that, it also just shows the divide between inner city people and rural people, and especially amongst like the technological elites. And I think that this is a big sort of problem of the left in that, if you're living in Silicon Valley and you're a big sort of tech giant and you have all these lofty ambitions, you're not thinking about all the other people that think differently, that have a different way of life. Yeah. And I think that we're just seeing this increasing fracture. And I think that's when things like philosophy come in, right? Like we need, there's been a lot of talk about how we need people with philosophy degrees who think about things like ethics on the front line, because I don't think these people have malicious intent, but it's just, vir- it's just by virtue of if you're like a programmer, you're probably just going to be obsessed with building technology and not really think about the wider ramifications. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack. <laughs> there's a lot to unpack. Uh, don't, I, was, I really like it. Um, to, to, to like go right back to the first part. And the question was with the divide and, and when we have those 15 million jobs, how are we going to, yeah. um, redistribute and that's a really good point because obviously self-driving cars in the valley are pretty much already a thing it's just a question of regulation and then there's going to be 15 million jobs bang and so that's a very good question because what so much of the south is it's an archaic economy that they all used to be rich from southern agriculture which is no longer really the industry and slaves free labor as well big point and so now that they they can't do that their economy hasn't really they haven't really diversified or changed into something. And so you've got these mega capitals in America, in California and in New York, where you just have all the wealth concentrated, all the new industries. And then to top that off, to add even more tension, you've got the Silicon Valley's kind of puppeteering the culture, as you say, like how they can regulate Twitter and things like that. And so then if you're in a poor country, sorry, not poor, poor state in America, say you're in Kentucky or something like that, and you look at this kind of elite and you're seeing how they have their hands and culture, they have all the economic thing. There's this resentment and it's, it is misplaced, as you say, because socialism would be in their interest to redistribute the capital like that. So the question of how do we redistribute capital from them, obviously the, the really basic answer is just jack taxes up to like 90%, but then you're going to have a problem where you're going to have a whole lot of capital leaving the United States. We're just people that live in yeah. California, right? Exactly. And, and it seems like the left has this issue where there's people that believe in it ideologically, but as soon as yeah. you even think about raising taxes, people fuck off the other place. Yeah, exactly. I want to add to that because a lot of people are saying, yeah, that's socialism. They want to jack up the taxes. But I think the reality is in America that if you get corporations and individuals who just pay the proper amount of tax, or maybe just increase it ever so slightly. <laughs> they wouldn't determine the proper amount. If you just increase it ever so slightly, that would solve a lot of problems. Because, for example, in Silicon Valley, the way a lot of the tech giants actually came there was that the government offered them incentives, these tax breaks to come in there and set up. Mm. And so you got all these companies which weren't actually paying tax, which led to a lot of the state sort of deficit, which led to them not being able to sort of help solve these homeless and opioid problems that are there. And so I think if you got these companies just playing fairly, like it doesn't need to be socialism. It's just like literally what we have in Australia. Yeah. 
they just acted on that more. That's important. And I think Americans need to kind of rewire fundamentally how they talk, they think about how they relate to the other. Because America yeah. is, a, is a very individualist country. And that's led to rampant innovation, a lot of the best parts of America, but it's yeah. left so many people behind. And it's like, if you have these people that are campaigning for more inequality, but then as soon as it's like, and the tax, the tax stuff that Biden was um, proposing was, it wasn't even like that much. Yeah. Like from an Australian perspective, if we look at it, it was like, what, I think it was over 500K. Yeah, um, yeah over 400K, which in US dollars is like 580 to 600,000 Australian dollars, right? Yeah. Um, and that's just, I think it's a very uniquely American problem to have yeah. that, like, that well, backlash. Well, sorry, just one, to go back a little bit, the solution that I was, I was, I was thinking about was, and I've argued this with some of my friends, is I think that there should be some form of tax for billionaires over a billion dollars. Is this wealth? Or um, this, is, this is wealth. And I think there should be a wealth tax because the problem in America compared to Australia especially is Australia's economy is a lot of small to medium enterprises. So there's a lot of family businesses that are kind of like the engine room for our economy. And in America, you go over there and you see like Walmart, Walmart, franchise, franchise. And that just means that there's so many... Um, so much wealth and income being concentrated in that top percentile, like the Walmart family. It just seems absurd to me that that's how you want to structure a society. It seems that that money should be, that they should cap their monopolies more, build the SME sector. And I reckon to top it all off, they should probably cap wealth at a certain point. I know that's so controversial. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people would push back on that. But I think that that wealth needs to be redistributed from that, let's say, top 500 people in America to the bottom bottom percentile. Yeah. I'd be interested to see what you guys think about that. Yeah, but. well, I, I think Adam and I are both very big fans of these kind of redistributive policies. No, I, especially I'm literally opposed to it. Right. Well, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go by... I'll We've go argued by this before. Well, I, like, I, I... But we'll I, go, we'll go. Yeah, I definitely think that at the top end, like I know there's that Warren Buffett quote that he spends, he adds less tax as percentage than his cleanup, right? Which I just think is absolutely crazy. And I think that... I, I think we can't take the hypercapitalist perspective here and we need to say that the, like just for off first principles, if we have this pie and people are paying tax and contributing mm. to the economy, I think it should go up. I think that America should have a more redistributive kind of form of taxation. That, that, yeah. That's what I believe in. Mm. I think I've got two points. The first thing is that I think I disagree principally with the idea of a wealth tax. I think it's fundamentally very different Why? from income because income is something that you earn um, then you pay your taxes, mm. then you've got it. If you tax wealth, that but means- wealth inequality is more than income inequality. Yeah, but this I'm just arguing from the principle mm. that when, so you have your income tax, um, these flows through to you. And mm. then if you have wealth, I just think that that should be yours because you've paid your taxes. It could be a number of different taxes. And I think that it should just be something- What, what about if the wealth is inherited? Would you change your perspective? Um, I, I think people should be able to freely give money between the families, but it mm. depends on what scale we're talking about. Mm. We're talking about like a couple million, a billion, a hundred billion. Yeah. I think that's different. But then the other thing about a wealth tax is that it actually, if you, I've seen some charts about how this works, that if you tax someone's wealth, let's say they have a billion dollars and it's a couple percent and that over like 40 or 50 years, that actually decreases it by around 70% because of compounding. Mm. And if you're not getting increased but, but income flows. But would you be opposed to that in the billionaire category that Sean was talking um, about? I think in the billionaire, I would. In the hyper billionaire, I wouldn't as much. Um, but, but sorry, if I could just jump in. That, that solves the problem beautifully if they don't get compounding interest so they can accumulate these big, big fortunes mm. of like $50 billion. You know what I mean? That's, like, that's kind of what I, my, my point is, is like, it seems like just an inefficient use of capital to have people having bank accounts with hundreds of billions of dollars and they're just mm. getting compound interest. Yeah. So I think, I think, and also the, the, it's interesting because this relates to psychology is when you frame it as a death tax versus when you frame it as an inheritance tax, mm. it, it has a yeah. radical difference Framing. on if, if people want it. And I don't, I don't think that there should be an inheritance tax for like anything under $5 million just because mm. Or even like let's say, let's even up that range. I just think it, it needs to be at that one billion point because once we get to that range, we're at money that is pretty much unprecedented in history in human history, and it's not going to work going forward if we can continue to give people such large mm, sums of mm. money. Yeah, and um, yeah, that's a good point. I think to add to my first point, and this is why I sort of try and mitigate the problem, is that so I guess the first one is that principally I disagree with the idea taken away from someone's wealth, but I still think that America should try and solve the problems where if they act fairly in terms of income tax, capital gains tax, yeah. and they move up some of their tax rates, that they won't have a lot of these problems in the first place. So 
for example, in capital gains tax, you mentioned the Warren Buffett thing mm. where Warren Buffett literally pays a lower tax rate than his cleaner because he's earning completely off capital gains. Mm. The American capital gains tax, I'll probably mess this up, but it's something like 15 or something percent. I think you should make that progressive and increase it all the way up to like 40% because yeah. why should you be able to be hundred, have $100 billion and mm. then be getting these capital gains and a tax so okay, low? So you're saying we should kind of intervene earlier so we don't get to that wealth problem. That's the point. Okay, okay yeah, I agree with you. So you're saying as a feature of income, you should have a capital gains tax that's progressive. Yeah, okay. mm. and, and I also think we should increase income taxes and a lot of the reason is that I saw, yeah, I find it principally hard to agree with the wealth tax because I think that once you get taxed once, something is yours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that I think we'll move on in a second. But yeah. just just to um, <laughs> just to just to finish up there, I, I think that what I what I think is that in capitalism, right, capital works for you, and the reason all these people are really wealthy and are over a billion dollars is because they have a lot of capital, and I think that. I, I like your income idea, but I do think that to, that would work. Maybe there'd be a 10-year time lag, but I think right now the problems we're seeing in America um, are, are like things that we need to address I, right now. I disagree because I think a wealth tax is a lot harder to instate due to because – so let's say you've got wealth in like paintings mm. in land and stuff – that means people have to liquidate and they have to sell part of that, which is really hard. And when France did this, they had a huge flight of mm. the billionaires out of the country. I think instating a capital gains tax is literally easier because you have money which flows to an account and they say, we're just going to take a cut of your dividend this year. Mm. When you sell a, sta- a stake in stock. What I'm saying is there'll be like a 10-year time lag for when that kind of those people don't become 10 billionaires and they become billionaires yeah. because of that yeah. kind of reform. But I guess I think that's a better approach because it's more pragmatic Yeah, in terms of I don't think wealth tax will work as much yeah but we should probably move on (laughs) (laughs) and and Sean I just before we move on I really like that um can already see that you're a great critical thinker very Joe Rogan-esque and stuff because like I think coming from an outside perspective when Adam told me about you and I was about to start reading your book I just assumption that you'd be like hyper capitalist and hyper like no (laughs) not into this kind of redistribution stuff which is really cool like it seems like you kind of take every idea on its merits which is I think a great skill to have I think um a chapter that we both found really interesting was actually the first chapter Dr. Carl Hart and the yeah. war on drugs. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that would be a gr- pretty interesting one for you to have researched. Yeah, awesome. Well, just to give context to people listening, um, he basically talks about the difference between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Because if you if you just get connotations and you just ask people, like, what do you think of crack cocaine? They say it's the worst thing since, like, the devil. Yeah. But what's interesting is when you investigate it, is they're actually chemically the same drug. They're identically the same. One just has the hydrochloride salt removed. Mm. So that's just so that you can, it's a different method of ingestion. So you can smoke crack and you can't smoke powdered cocaine. And so the same thing, he basically would do research where he'd get people into his laboratory and he'd compare, he'd look at the literature. And the the crazy thing is there is no more harmful effects than crack cocaine than powdered cocaine. The one catch is that there is a higher addiction rate for um, crack cocaine, I think it's 15% and then powder cocaine is about 10. Alcohol is also about 10. Um, but the really interesting thing is... Wow. Uh, powder cocaine and alcohol are the same? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's, that's, they're roughly the same. And so the, the thing that's really interesting is that it's, the crack cocaine is a much more higher hit. It's like it's, the comparison that I use it's is... Like a 20-minute um, hit or something. Yeah, exactly. It's like the comparison I use is like edible marijuana versus smoking marijuana. It's a different type of high. It's a different intensity. And that the intensity influences the addiction rate. Mm. It's not the chemical, the chemical drug. And why it's such an interesting case study to look at is because of all the we were talking about America and yeah. all the discrimination policies in America were targeting crack cocaine, and that had a really bad impact on African American communities. Because as we were talking about before the show started, if you give a drug to a certain community and there's not alternatives for seeking dopamine rewards drugs are going to go exponentially through the roof. And that's why if you give powder cocaine to like privileged people who have other paths, it's not going to pillage those communities, but it does when you have people who don't have those opportunities. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting idea. And the idea about the environment um, and the sort of nature argument is really interesting because it's essentially saying that your lifestyle, your environment is what determines addiction. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true to a certain extent but this thing that i will sort of be a devil's advocate on is that i do think that things like meth and crack cocaine are a lot more harmful from what i've studied and sort of researched in the sense that 
you can like watch videos of people that are like mm. like in these sort of ghettos in American people that are high on these certain drugs and you do get this sense that it's so much more harmful in the sense of it causes people to do much much crazier things in terms of violence, in terms of like sort of disturbing other people. But I think that's because they have that yeah. addiction and it's got to their Yeah, so, so I just have to push back on that. It's important when we're talking about research, like if we're talking about kind of observing and what we mm. think and what we perceive and mm. what we've seen visually, that's very different to what the kind of like hard meta literature says. Mm. And um, there's not really a lot of evidence at all from my understanding that meth is actually more like significantly harm more harmful than Adderall. The okay, reason why okay. is because the reason why that there's this like thing where you're saying is because when we have poor communities, they do more of these cheaper drugs. Therefore, we see more violence, we see more okay. health problems. But there's it could be a confounding variable of is it just because they're poor and they don't have access to healthcare, they don't sleep much, they don't have educational opportunities. And we also mm. need to consider propensity to develop a mental so, health illness as well. Exactly. Yeah. So there's always there's all these confounding variables, and that's why most people assume that crack is worse than powder yeah. cocaine. But like the reality of it is, is that say we gave, if, if we took people like privileged people who are doing powder cocaine and we said, okay, for the next five months, you're going to sleep four hours a day. You're not going to go to uni. You're going to be adding, stress. you're going to be high stress. Yeah. Your mum has schizophrenia now. You add all these variables. And what I would hypothesize is that you would actually find a very similar rate of um, okay. abuse. So then on the flip side, if you sort of went to some sort of ghetto where a lot of people were doing things like crack cocaine and then you gave them powdered cocaine did you and they like sort of developed an addiction to that, would you think it would be the same sort of social problems in that sense or do you think it would be not as bad? Um, yeah, uh, well, so... Depends if they're the same price or not. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. It's, it's, mm. a, it's an economics thing. Yeah. Like if you've got one thing that costs upwards of $300 than one that costs $20. Yeah. Of course, the one that's cheap is going to be more abusive. Yeah. Like that's why fast food so like bad. It's just, it's a price thing. Yeah. But if your, if your question was, if they're the same price, would they be um, both detrimental? And I would say yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah. obviously, we'd have a slightly higher percentage of people getting addicted to crack. But yeah. mm-hmm. on the average, yeah, I'd say yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. I, I think maybe another example of that would be, according to this, that if – at university, people are doing Adderall constantly, not just for studying or not just for um, a special occasion. And they had these same kind of propensities to develop um, these mental health illnesses or the same kind of stress at home mm. as a disadvantaged community. We may mm. see universities as like what you said before. It's mm. like really like, you know, almost like ghettos with a lot of people on drugs. Wow. And I, th- and I found really interesting in the book, you talked about how, uh, was it Bush that started the war on drugs yeah. a lot and his son was actually yeah. <laughs> um, caught doing powdered cocaine. And yeah, it's crazy. Before that, I read that chapter, I thought that crack was like 20 times worse. Everyone like, does. <laughs> like I thought that as well. Everyone, it's everyone does. Yeah. Um, and I, I think in this book, there's a lot of like, although they're 25 kind of independent ideas, there's a lot of correlations and like thematic um, similarities. Like you talk about the war on drugs, obviously that's something that was targeted based on race or socioeconomic status. Yeah. And then you talk about um, race and love and what, like how we can kind of reform these racial injustices in the US. So I think that may yeah. be somewhere else we could go. Yeah, yeah. And so... Obviously, at the time I was writing it, it was when the George Floyd stuff had happened. Yeah. And I had been over in America and I had seen a lot of racial tension when I was over there. I was actually in a bus. Um, I was in a public bus. Because you know how in Sydney, public buses are completely normal, like high taxes pay for good infrastructure. Yeah. In America, if you're on a public bus, like that's considered like you don't do that. And I didn't know that. Yeah, like don't take public transport, right? Yeah, so I didn't know that. <laughs> really? So me and the Australians would always get on the public buses. And we're on the public bus and there was... Um, an African-American man and a white homeless man. And the white homeless man called um, the African-American man the N-word. And so they were both like right in each other's face. And I was in between these two guys. And so I was like, mate, you should probably get off the bus to the homeless guy. And he got pepper spray out. And he like just put it in my face. And so there was this huge kerfuffle. And that that story has happened multiple times to some extent when I was over there of like wow. some weird racial tension thing um, in the bus. And so when I came home to my parents before the George Floyd stuff said, I was like, something's like not right in mm. America. Like it's it's just I've never seen that level of animosity. And so I was like writing that chapter to try to kind of be like I read um, Cornell, Dr. Cornell West's work and I was trying to kind of understand from his perspective what was going on and so that was really interesting for me to try and unpack that and you just you just see like the the origins of slavery and how recent that was 
it, it still has its tentacles in culture. Mm. And I think there's a long, long way to go before it doesn't. Did so, you travel around the Midwest at all? Um, I went to Louisiana and Texas. Did you see any difference from um, Texas, Louisiana to other places you traveled in the US? Um, that's a good question. Even in, in Texas itself, like Austin's, it's called the Blue Dot and the Red Sea. Yeah. So Austin's very liberal. Like California is literally moving there, right? Now. Yeah, Austin's like yeah. so liberal. Yeah. And so I was there and I didn't really notice it. But then once I would go even out of Austin and just into yeah. Texas, you could notice it like yeah. a lot. Well, another kind of tentacle attached to that first chapter on the war on drugs is and something you explore later in the book, which is a very Joe Rogan-esque um, idea. And I think we'd be doing Joe Rogan injustice if we didn't explore <laughs> it, which is psychedelics, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And you talk a lot about the John, John Hopkins Center, which um, one of my personal heroes, Tim Ferriss, um, oh, yeah. is really invested in. And it seems like there's been, and I think uh, this may be wrong, but I think Oregon might have um, legalized magic magic mushrooms over the weekend. For medicinal it, use. For medicinal use, yeah. So, yeah. And so what, what kind of, how did your perspectives change when doing the research on all these kinds of things? Yeah, so it's funny because I probably a couple of years ago had an outlook on drugs where I was kind of just probably like Richard Nixon. I was like, no drugs, like all bad, yeah, equally bad. And then as I kind of got older and I kind of started thinking about it more critically, I really, because one thing I remember at school, I remember being in Runga Public School and we had the Healthy Harold come over and someone asked the question, which is the worst drug? And they replied, like, all drugs are equally as bad. Yeah. And I remember just thinking that that is a hard and fast rule for like the next 15 My, my Healthy Harold guy actually smokes. Like, we saw yeah. him after, like, smoking. <laughs> He's got the yeah. crack by now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I thought that was a hard and fast rule. And then. When I was a bit older, I was like, oh, hold on. That seems like something which I which I should kind of critically think about. And so I thought about it and then I was like, no, no, there's definitely a hierarchy to which drugs are which drugs are bad and which drugs are good. And then I started to realize that psychedelics were higher on the hierarchy of having just bet, um, positive impacts. Mm. Started looking into a lot of the literature. Obviously, you've got your like bro terms where Rogan talks about DMT. But I started trying to like look at it a bit more critically. And I think that there is really something to be said and Fer Ferris as well he's a huge advocate yeah and I think there's something to be said for the positive benefits yeah. that they can have I, I think it's like one of the sort of last untapped potentials of things in nature or maybe not one of the last but it's one of the huge untapped potentials so we've looked at the research from What's the that John company Hopkins? that IPO'd that was it's like a Peter Thiel about company Palantir, Palantir. Yeah. no 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 oh, yeah <laughs> it's a different one oh, we'll, we'll look at it after yeah so like looking at the research we've seen from John Hopkins, like they did research on PTSD, trauma, depression, anxiety. What, some of the studies with magic mushrooms, especially for PTSD, showed these rates of like 60%, whereas after a week, 60% of people mm. had their symptoms like visibly improved. And also depression was a huge one. Like you had people that had everything completely shifted, changed, and almost mm. a depression just almost like just completely deleted right. after a week. I think another interesting Literally one is after, addiction there. Well, yeah. it's like people that were had these huge addictions, these um, sometimes like drugs like heroin, mm. Um, mm. which they couldn't shake through any traditional um, kind of therapy, and then also like um, cigarettes. And within yeah. one... Um, kind of session with psychedelics they it yeah. was completely gone and nothing from the research we saw nothing came close in no. second place like these things were like 60 percent for people improving symptoms after a week after a month you had like 30 to 40 percent like almost completely gone and then just everything else was like in those sort of 10 percent regions for like yeah. a month or a year yeah and it's insane i i kind of hypothesize in the next 10 15 years as adam said this will be one of the kind of new medicinal revolutions and i know in the book mm. you talk about um kind of big pharmaceutical companies in the u.s and yeah. with antidepressants which i think we'll get to in a second but uh, there's this company i think peter tl is an investor in it and just ipo'd and it does basically stuff with um psychedelic compounds um to do with mental health and i just think that it's gonna be one of the biggest trends in our yeah. generation Hopefully. Hopefully. Hopefully Dan <laughs> doesn't start like an Ignite brand around yeah. psychedelics. I, I think the other thing we that should mention as part of this is that there's a lot of danger. That <laughs> these things, like in certain situations, when you're trying to heal people, so much benefits. Mm -hmm. Then there's a lot of danger in letting these things be more free, letting people use them when they want. Yeah. Well, the, the main caveat that you have to issue is that if you have a predisposition for schizophrenia in your family yeah. or, or bipolar, then they're a serious threat. Mm. Um, the counter argument is obviously that there are other serious threats like your parents getting divorced, et cetera. But I think they are really powerful. And I think 
if people think that like you can just use them in whatever context you want and use them carelessly, yeah. I think the consequences can be really, really great. And what Tim Ferriss talks about a lot is it's also not a magic bullet. Like what we've described, like this is with therapy that yeah. it's not something you can take by yourself in the woods and magically all your problems will be disappeared, um, which is something, again, we should caveat. Yeah. But yeah, I'm really interested to see how this space develops. Um, yeah, I think that's a good segue because we just kind of touched on mental health. And I think your chapter on um antidepressants i can't remember who the guest was uh, Johan Hari. yeah it was it was extremely interesting because you kind of you, you took a very um kind of balanced view on depression you said look we, we've had it described to us as a chemical imbalance and uh, you think a lot of that is because of big pharma mm -hmm. and that there is other ways that we can kind of um like we can kind of i don't want to say cure but kind of mitigate some of these impacts and obviously our generation we hear this time and time again, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast, has some of the highest anxiety and depression rates out of any generation. And what we talked about before at the very start about community, maybe that's a kind of um, antidote we, we could use, but yeah. I'd love to hear what you're um, exploring on these ideas, what you found. Yeah, it's awesome because I was going to do the same segue back to the first community point. To start it off, there's this tribe in Africa that this anthropologist visited. And when he was over there, there were, people had visited them before and the only thing that they remembered about the US was they were like, that's the culture where people jump off the buildings from. And for them, that was like so jarring. Like it always stuck in the head because they had no conception of suicide. And this is like kind of probably this, this, this argument is kind of controversial and I'll probably need to flesh it out more because some people are going to be instantly just like, yeah, yeah. that's a terrible point. And so when you, when you look at how we used to be optimized again, so you have these, these tribes that had intensely interconnected communities they had food that had no preservatives no additives they had a clear sense of purpose it was avoid predators get food yeah and so you had all your needs as a human were being completely met and then fast forward to the agricultural revolution five thousand years ago and we just have a complete we're, we're literally taken from the garden of eden if you want to use biblical terms and just put into this system that is not optimized for how we are at all we start eating a lot of refined grains which we, that's another topic as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we start eating refined grains. We then, it shifts from the, the tribe of 50 to the nuclear family of four. And then we start living in, that's when the patriarchy also emerges once we have agriculture. Again, another topic. But basically what my argument is, is that when you look at how unnatural civilizations have been, it's not really a surprise that there are all these mental health effects. They're just the residues of a system that we weren't made for. And so it's so indicative that we think the solution is to medicate and get big pharma involved and, and solve all the problems. I, I really liked your anecdote, not anecdote, um, in, in the book where you also talked about how our brain hardware is like so old, again, on those, yeah. um, those savannas in Africa, but our environment is changing so quickly. Exactly, exactly. And so the, like for, for a probably, I think, I don't want to misquote it, but I think, evolution takes about 15,000 years for like a major feature in people. And we've only had agriculture for five to 10,000 years. So like this is, this is my main point is that instead of trying to medicate our way out of it, I think that just returning to a lot of these ancient things that we had, community, nature, proper food, I think a lot of those solutions will be more effective than, than big farm. And that's not just my opinion. There's actually a lot of evidence for that. And for me, a study which I think is really cool and it just really explains it is um, it's in the book. They had a, a pr the prison in Michigan and half the prisoners faced out to a brick wall and the other half faced out to like a, a little yeah, reserve. Story. And so if you're facing the brick wall, 25% more likely to develop a mental health condition. Yeah. And if we think of something as so small as that, where is that translating into everyday life? Like people who are in apartments all day because of COVID, yeah. they don't see any people and then they feel depressed and they're like, I need to medicate. It's like, well, obviously people are feeling depressed if as a human being, they're by themselves in an apartment, they're eating Uber Eats every day, they don't exercise, they haven't got a clear sense of purpose. Like that just makes so much sense to me. And so I think the solutions lie outside. Yeah, I just want to ask a question. Something you've brought up multiple times is this idea of community. And so how do you conceive of community and do you have sort of any maybe practical ideas of how we can reinstate this into our societies? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good point. Um, for me, like I live in like a share house and that's obviously like an easy yeah. way of like that's a, I place a really high priority on that. Like yeah. even though rent costs something ludicrous, yeah. I would rather spend that money living with my friends than just 
putting it in investments and trying to get interest on that. And so I think, <laughs> but that's a personal thing. But I, yeah. I think um, just one, one thing I always say, like I have a list of like 10 things, like 10 rules. Yeah. And they're just kind of like little things, like always go to bed at X time, try to, mm. and always drink this amount of water. And the reason it might sound really absurd, but the reason I do that is just to remind myself like of all these basic needs that we have. Yeah. And so I think sport is a really great way of like meeting a big group mm. of people and yeah. connecting. Um, I think, and I also think that, like, I think there is a huge gap, sorry, a huge drop in mental health post high school, right? And I think a lot of that is because of that loss of community, right? You go to this thing where. So you mean there's an increase? Do you mean there's an increase in mental? Health? A, yeah, a drop in oh, mental oh, health. Oh, so I worded that in a weird way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and, I, and like I think we we studied this. Um, this subject called philosophy of happiness and a big thing they talk about is that religious people are more happy mm. and they break that down into community and meaning as, as the two major things driving that mm. and i think in high school we have this kind of forced sense of community right we have these people we see every day we're yeah. interacting with people on a constant basis we're outside we have to go out for lunch right we yeah. have sport that's kind mm. of mandatory right and we have something we bounce off each other i think I think a lot of people say that although HSC is the hardest year, it's also the most rewarding because you have this sense of community, this con, mm-hmm. this um, comradeship. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And on your point of community and sport, I think you mentioned there was a book in your book, which is called, I think it was Bowling Alone. And it was someone, I can't remember if I read it there or somewhere else, but it was about that participation in like sort of random sport leagues in America has dropped like significantly in the sense that we're not interacting as much with people that are, that we don't know that much in like a soccer league or a bowling league, but where over time we've become a lot more focused on just our really close knit friends doing things with them. And it actually has harmful effects. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Someone was talking to me the other day about, in Australia, probably in the 70s and 80s, how it was a normal thing just to like strike up a conversation with someone on the train. Yeah. And like if someone said to you now, you kind of like double check and you're yeah. like, is this, am I, am I safe? Like, and so I think the phone probably has had a big yeah. negative impact in taking away the community because when you didn't have a phone, think about before when there was no phones, like you couldn't Uber Eats. So you, if you wanted food, you had to go to a grocery market or a restaurant. Mm. If you wanted sport, if you wanted entertainment, you had to go out and do these things. So on your point, the biggest one there is if you wanted to interact with your friends, you had to go out. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so on that point, you were saying before how everything can just be done from the comfort of your living room. Yeah, I think that the phone is taking away the community because it's robbing us of all that like hard work to actually go after things that are meaningful, like spend time with people, like call a girl on a date as opposed to Tinder for like five hours, as as Jesse Hughes does. So I was calling out my friend. Yeah, and, and I think we've just kind of set up the parameters for a kind of look forward, right? We, we've talked a lot about um, some of the issues with society today. And I think I, I know that I think I know what both of you are going to say, and I'm going to try and um, challenge it in advance, which is I think you're going to say that it's an individual thing. But just watching the social dilemma, we can see how much we're just not in control of these things and how technology is kind of um, accelerating so rapidly. So going back to what you said about mental health and you talked about going outside, things like exercise, things like community. How can we, as a society, reinstate these things that are part of our fundamental wiring back into society, but also keeping in mind what the social dilemma talks about and how much we're actually not in control? Because I think that uh, like phone addiction, like I'm someone that considers myself that I don't get addicted to things very easily, right? Like I have this very high sense of like I can control control stuff, but I'm addicted to my phone like most of us are. And I think the social dilemma kind of – pull that into perspective that maybe it's not a, a conscious thing yeah yeah it's a really good question and when you think about the fact that you've got these guys in silicon valley who are the top ai experts in the world and they're competing against us just hung over potentially scrolling our <laughs> phone we don't we don't stand it we don't stand a chance like we don't we don't stand a chance and so one one thing which i use personally is this app called freedom yeah i have it and yeah and you i'm sure you guys know so you basically just can set parameters of when you use your phone. But even that, it's not the best technology. It's got a lot of problems. Mm. But I think if we have things like that, and I think if let's say- yeah, but You mentioned nature before as well, right? Yeah. Like, I think this is going a bit of maths, but you mentioned nature. Yeah. And if we're going to naturally see these kind of, this building up of mega cities and stuff like that, like it's inevitable, especially in Sydney, we're seeing so many apartments rise. What's like, what's your kind of conception of that as well? Okay. Okay. So two points. Yeah. So the the- when we have more people living in urban environments, how do we kind of increase the yeah. nature aspect? Um, that's a really good point. And I think you'll notice with the current 
trend in architecture is these kind of hybrid cities and we have these green buildings and stuff like that. I think you can literally trick the human brain. I don't think it's that sophisticated in the sense mm-hmm. I think if we have this merging of these worlds of nature and architecture, I think you can design buildings that are almost like these like internal jungles in a way. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a really good building that I like in the CBD. Um, it's near Broadway Shopping Center. The big central one with the yeah. green stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the trend and I think we can keep building on that. Yeah. There's some startups that I've been looking at that are actually designing veggie patches in your house. Cool. And so like you have like a cupboard and then the veggie patch pulls out. And it sounds a bit futuristic, but I think that that answers your pro- your question of yeah. like how do we go there. And then to the second one that we were kind of talking about of um, the technology and the apps and how do we get people to like kind of get off that. That's that's interesting because I know I disagree with you because you seem like you'd be more of a like a libertarian, like let the free market decide or is that On not? this issue, I think I would actually be much more with you guys in terms of um, – I think there needs to be regulation from the government. Yeah, exactly. Like tech giants I, 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 I think yeah, there needs to be I a lot think, of top-down things here. I think No, no, no. I go, I go, I go. I think I think it needs to be government top-down. Um, needs to be regulation. I think that's the only way that you can win. Like, yeah. Um, but I'd be interested to see what you guys think as well. Yeah. Um, so on the social point or the sort of buildings aspect? Um, on the social. On the social. Yeah. Point. Well, I think on the social point, there definitely needs to be top-down regulation because nothing's going to happen if that doesn't happen. Mm. Because in the end of the day, let's face it, Twitter, Facebook, Google, all of them, they're profit-motivated. They're creating great products, but they also want more and more people to use them. And as we saw in the social dilemma, there's a hub of engineers working in these buildings in Silicon Valley that are working day in, day out, day in, day night to make us more addicted to it. Yeah. And I think you do see some good things. Like we've got the sort of time app. I forget what it's called, the time tracker app on uh, iPhone, which mm. shows how often you're going on your socials yeah. and stuff. Mm. And that was actually, that idea came from like an individual engineer there who was like, okay, I'm a bit scared of what's happening. I'm going to try and do that. But it's just not enough. And yeah. so there is going to need to be, I'm not educated enough on this topic, but some sort of outside intervention. Mm-hmm. I think we're all screwed. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is a kind of a key thing for the libertarians out there is that the trajectory we're going on with technology and how society is developing is directly opposite to what your conception of good mental health and yeah. a good life is traveling. And we spoke very at the beginning about mindful use of technology. And yes, that can happen, but I do mm. think we need some top-down regulation. I don't know how that's going to happen because yeah. it worries me. Like I, for my, do- for my job right now, I teach social enterprise and design thinking in schools. And I've literally seen two girls that were both the school captains of their schools were doing like a little um, icebreaker event. They were talking to each other face-to-face and they were silent. I went over and I was like, oh, what's going on? Like, do you guys not like each other or, you know, what? And she, and she literally said to me, mm. I feel more comfortable texting her. Really? Yeah. And, and these are leaders of a school, right? Yeah. And I think we, we're, we're kind of from the generation where we kind of iPhones were only started getting really big at the start of high school where everyone had yeah. them. We had yeah. our, yeah. our um, what, what, they, I, what were they? iTouch. iPods? iPod Touch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those are, I feel like an old man. Yeah, they're like, as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but think about the kids that have been brought up with this stuff. Some of these kids have had these smartphones from the age of five or six. Yeah. And they've been scrolling through Twitter. That's and such an important point is that we can't just consider our generation, but the younger yeah. ones. Because oh, my girlfriend has, in part of her family, she's got a lot of younger siblings. And I see them from the age of like six, constantly like on iPads playing like a lot of video games and stuff. And I think when you consider how early people are starting to use like social media, especially TikTok, because that's targeting really young people, mm. that's when like the problems really arise. Yeah. So there has to be something done. It, it, it's one of those things where you'd always start with education, but education just isn't enough. Because we all know yeah. we all know what we're doing to ourselves. That, and like, I don't <laughs> think we need to like put these technology companies and like get our pitchforks and say, burn them down. Because they're doing a lot of great things. Like I love yeah. Twitter and the discussion of ideas on it. But then the corollary of that is that you can spend ages uh, scrolling on it. So yeah. like there's a lot of great inherent things, but we've just got to limit how do we stop people from And if I'm going to get, get really deep and philosophical, um, it's also important to consider the nature of work. Like if you've got people who are using TikTok for five hours a day, there's obviously something in their life that's not being fulfilled that causes them to do that. So I think this links back to my original point of saying we want this like focus on community because then if we have more people and they can interact with each other, the need and the demand for social media becomes less. I challenge that because Mm. I'd say that we could have these things that are incredibly fulfilling, right? But 
these these systems and um, these engineers in Silicon Valley are wiring us up for instant gratification. So I think that even if you do have something very fulfilling that you're working towards, you still have to kind of sidestep that initial dopamine hit to then yeah. get that long-term fulfillment. For sure, but I would say that the, the dopamine of the natural world is stronger than anything in the artificial world. So speaking to people and having worthwhile conversation is going to be more than a TikTok. Now, I'll caveat that because... One thing I've noticed is that if people aren't confident in social situations and they like kind of have impediments, let's say because they've been on their phone since they were young, they actually don't get as much out of them as people who feel more comfortable and actually like talking. So obviously there's a time lag because it's like if we just get all little kids to start interacting more people, some of them are going to have not lack the skills and they'll feel they'll still feel like they don't enjoy that. I'd rather be texting, etc. But I think that over time once the kids develop the skills, the natural reward system of people is much stronger. Mm. That's a really interesting point about the dopamine hit being stronger in real life. Mm, And I think that's true, but I think we've got to remember we're comparing two very different things. So let's say you walk onto a train and you see someone interesting Mm. um, reading a book that you like. So you've got two options. You might go up to them, talk to them. That could be a potentially very fulfilling conversation or you could go on your phone and get literally an instant hit. So we are talking about something where the hit is instant and something where it's very difficult. Let's say you go onto a train and you talk to that person. It's really difficult to conjure up the courage to talk to them. Maybe the conversation might be awkward at the start, but you could have a great conversation in your train ride and you could be so invigorated after it. Whereas the flip side, after you use your phone, you don't feel invigorated after it. That's what I was going with that instant gratification thing I said before is that that barrier is a bit higher to get there because of all these things, right? So you have to kind of overstep that to get that extra dopamine hit. So it's that instant gratification. I think that's a really important point because like me personally, I'm like a top 1% extrovert, but there's still times when I'm like about to talk to a random person where I still get this sense of uncertainty, right? If I'm up here on the fucking uh, crazy spectrum, I like imagine people that are naturally introverted like i it'd be so hard yeah. um but sean like you're, you're not just this joe rogan book you're, <laughs> you're a whole you're a whole other person um so you're, you're working in blackbird vc right now um i'd love to hear how you got that gig and also just what's next for you like well, what do you kind of want to achieve in your short time on earth <laughs> or long if you um the, yeah. the person wants to live forever. i love the way of formulating that question <laughs> yeah. um yeah so uh the story of blackbird um, was basically that this was towards the end of when I was finishing up the book. I was like, shit, I need a job. I need money. Like, I need a bit of out of home. Yeah. And so, so before we get to that, how much all up would it cost to, um, it book? costs five grand, okay. six okay. grand. Not bad. That's not, that's doable um, for like a lot six of grand. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I was like, I need to move out. This is getting ridiculous. And so I just started cold emailing like everywhere I could. I would just cold email and I, at first I would do the, the normal like well-formulated emails like dear sir, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then after a while, I was just like, there's a recession. I'm going to have to really reinvent the wheel. Like this is not yeah. going to work. So I do DMT. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I messaged, I messaged the, the zip guy and I was like, like go long oh, lines. Yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Whatever. And I was like, go long ones. He replied, but like I did things like that. And so I um, messaged Blackbird and was like, um, hey guys, I'm, I've applied, applied for investment instead of applied for a job. And I was like, hey guys, I've got a rocket ship company. Mum and dad have put $200 into it. I think it's going to be the next big thing. Like just <laughs> literally took the piss. I was like, the innovation is that instead of having like gray smoke, like I want to have like a pink salmon smoke. Like, <laughs> it was just like ridiculous. Was, like, there, was there anything at the end of the email? Yes, yeah. So there was, there was one line at the end that just said, I'm not actually delusional. If you need an intern to write things for you, here's my email address. Oh, that's so and then so, And so then like just the stars aligned, like got an email from someone there. They were like, really liked your email. Let's have a call. Had a few interviews and stuff like that. And then they're just like, look, we'd love to have you in the office. Like you can be an intern, just do some writing for us and like kind of like see how everything works, which yeah. is really cool. So that's, I, I, I fucking love that. Yeah. So that. it's like, it's like the, the most awesome job. Like I love it. The people that are amazing. So how did you, did you always have a passion for like startups and venture capital? Yeah. So, so it's actually funny because when I was, I I read something that I wrote when I was 11 the other day that my mom showed me and it says, I want to start businesses so that I can not work when I'm 30. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I was like inside Yeah. But I used to be very, very into like starting things when I was little. Um, I had a lot of like little business ventures. Like I started like a photography business and then did a few things like that. And, um, I was always like trying to like kind of like create, like I'd sell laptops. I'd always try to do things like that. And then when I was 18, I just kind of went full the opposite. I was like, hate business. I don't want to do that. I want to like be a writer and do ideas and things like that. 
But then it kind of went full circle and I realized how powerful of an engine startups actually were. And I was like, oh, they're not this like big, bad corporate villain. It's actually like the engine room for how everything gets done yeah. and everything positive gets yeah. done. So I, I was like, that's exactly what I was It's almost do. like a step above all this stuff. Like, this is the ideas and that's like the way of manifesting yeah. into the world. Which exactly. seems like a natural extension. I think a lot of people go for that where they see business, big corporations as a bad thing. And you realize the power of these things as a vehicle to solve problems. Yeah. And I think you'd see that firsthand at a company like Blackbird, which is extremely ambitious. Oh, yeah. They want to back founders that are doing crazy things that are solving it. And, and especially the, the problems that they're solving at Blackbird are like literally climate change, yeah. food shortages. Like the, it was just amazing when I was there how like kind of their vision is very, they only want to fund companies that their kids will be proud of. Like that's kind of their mantra, mantra and like they, they do that. They don't yeah. fund like secondary market crypto, like yeah. things like that. So I think that was – and like the word venture capital, it just sounds evil. Yeah. Like don't you reckon yeah. like you say venture capital? You're sort of, venture, yeah, yeah, you're like it just sounds evil but it's actually – in my mind, the complete opposite. Mm. And so I really like that. And, and I think that for a lot of people, startups become this like kind of antidote antidote to big business and in the sense that, okay, big business is like this. In our careers, it's going to be very hard to change it unless you're an activist, investor or whatever. But mm. let me try this. This is a way of combining my interest in business, which yeah. I think a lot of people we've talked to have had these natural inclinations when they're young yeah. with the, with what I want to create in the world, with like these yeah. ideas, which, which is what me and Adam's whole brand is now, right? It's literally yeah. using business as a vehicle for social change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's just so many examples of that, right? I'd love to, what, what's kind of been... I don't know if you can talk about it, but what's like in Blackbird's portfolio, what's like the most interesting company that you... Yeah, um, yeah okay, I'm just trying to think which ones I can speak about. Um, yeah. So there is some ones called Val and Fable. And so what they are is they're alternate meat companies. And so the... Is that like Beyond Meat kind of thing? Um, I don't know what Beyond Meat is, but yeah. it's like, it's basically just curate, like um, there's a specific term for it when they basically cultured meat. So it's grown from animal cells in vitro in lab. And so the reason why it's really cool is because one of the partners there kind of envisaged this problem of we're going to have a food shortage. Like people want to eat X number of meat. It's growing at this population is growing at X rate. It doesn't match. So what are we going to do? And so that's a big, big problem. And so a lot of people have come along and they've actually made this alternative meat sources. And so the company, which I think is really interesting, is Val because what they're doing is they're not just saying like, let's make alternate uh, beef. They're saying, hold on, we can create any single type of animal meat and it's no, no, no slaughter, no torture. So they're growing like zebra, kangaroo, anything. And they're saying that you can even have types of meat you didn't even know existed because they can literally create, their goal is to create like anything, any creature wow. and then sell that meat out, Wow, which That's is cool. really mind-boggling yeah and you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out the positive impacts on the world with car- with climate change and exactly um, meat consumption how do you see that movement progressing into the future this alternative industry alternative meat yeah it's hard because i'm i must admit i'm the complete opposite of someone who is like into vegan and, and things yeah. like that so i'm not really the ideal consumer but going forward i think that if they can create meat and we uh, i personally want to see studies as well where we compare like the effects of what yeah. this culture meat has i think i'm a bit like not skeptical i'm just more more um conservative with that kind of stuff but i think going forward it could seriously substitute the majority of the slaughterhouse meat and then we could have wild game and so if we have like wild game and then culture meat we then eliminate the industrial kind of slaughterhouse yeah. process. All I think, that stuff in the middle. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's what we should kind of aim for. I mm. think that's a really big goal. That's awesome. Um, and that shows just the power of um, Blackbird and sort of the companies that they're yeah. backing. Yeah. It's really amazing. I think another one that I saw that Blackbird is backing is called, I think it's Sun Cable. SunDrive. SunDrive. I think they're looking at the solar cells. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And they're trying to – so it's a very complex sort of um, technology, but they're looking at what actually goes into solar cells and they're trying to find alternative metals for them, exactly. ones that are a lot less rare. Yeah, exactly, because the, the big problem with solar panels at the moment is that they have to have silver. And so there's some statistic where they said if, like, the, all of the world's power was used by solar, we'd run out of silver in, like, two days or something like that because, basically, we do not have enough silver to create the yeah. amount of energy we need. And so that's a really big problem. And these guys have come along and they've actually developed solar power. They've developed a way of making solar panels where you don't use solar. I think you use copper, something a lot more abundant. And so that's another problem, which is just, like, 
so tangible, so needed. And mm. it's really cool to like see, see them kind of go out there. Yeah. Awesome. It's really cool. Yeah. I think we're going to have to wrap up. Yeah. So we'll ask our soon. little last question, which is sure. if yeah. you could uh, leave your, our audience, 18 to 25 univer- year old university students with one thing from your experience in life, what would it be? Um, I feel so like incompetent to answer that question, <laughs> but I would just say like, okay. If I just say that, I'd say, Part of me wants to say don't go to university, but I feel like that's such a common answer and like it doesn't really add much value. I would say don't think that I get caught up in the sense that I've always got to be productive. I've always got to be getting the highest marks. Yeah. And if you think like that, it means that there's so many things and so many experiences which you don't chase after because you always think you could be using your time. I'd say use your time ineffectively at university because mm. as a byproduct. Yeah, Come honestly, on, we, we've heard that a lot. Like we talked to the founder of Airtasker just like last week and he basically partied during university, <laughs> yeah. did a bunch of other things. Like a lot of the sort of greatest people we talked to say experience widely in uni. And pr- probably this really semester cool. is my last time at uni and Adam and I have literally probably spent more time networking, podcasting, yeah. than studying. <laughs> yeah. on an hour yeah. basis. And that's probably added so much. Like if we take yeah. the MPV of that to our life. Yeah, 10 billion in a few years time yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> no, we hope so <laughs> thanks very much Sean that was yeah. awesome thanks and so um, we'll link your book in the show notes oh, thank you it's a great book everyone yeah yeah. I don't think it's actually selling in Australia anymore I think it's only oh. everywhere but Australia so convenient well you can borrow it off Adam <laughs> yeah actually Adam doesn't lend our books anymore because yeah. I've ruined all of them but alright <laughs> see you later yeah. that was awesome thanks guys